This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. Welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. My name is Nick Limsdahl, and my guest this week is Anthony Anarino. Anthony is a highly respected international speaker, best-selling author, entrepreneur, and sales leader specializing in the complex business-to-business sale. Anthony is a top thought leader in sales strategy. His most recent book, Elite Sales Strategies, a guide to being one-up, creating value, and becoming a truly consultative. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You bet. So the first question I have for every single guest at the very beginning is, what's one thing people might not know about you? I don't know if people don't know this or not, so I can give you a couple of them. Uh, I started playing rock and roll when I was 15, and I fronted a hair metal band until I was 26, uh, after I had a brain surgery and after Nirvana killed, you know, hair metal. Uh, Then then it ended for me at that point in time. The other thing that some people might not know is that I had a a brain surgery uh, when I was 25, and I lost a, a piece of my right temporal lobe. Uh, due to a group of arteries and veins that grew into a knot, uh, something congenital, just born with it. And on, when I was in L.A., I had a grand mal seizure, and that's how I discovered that I had to have a brain surgery. Would would have been interesting if they would have told me that they were going to remove a piece of my brain before they did the surgery, but I only found that out after the surgery. Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough journey, I guess, going back to the the, the metal what if you could play one song over again and you're on that main stage and the biggest stage there is what song would you play for those about to rock we salute you i love it there there was a time where i could do that too that time has passed but there was a time (laughs) where i could do it i could do bon scott and brian johnson when i was a kid and so i was able to sing for four sets a night and the voice got gravelly and I could just do that. So I'd miss it, but that was another time. Yeah, it's very cool. And then the, the second question I got before we actually get started into the, to the meat of the conversation, uh, talking about your book, is what did you learn in that journey of, of going through those surgeries? There was a, a, a bit of difficulty on the other side of the surgery. Not anything that was physiological, it was psychological. So for some reason, between the drugs that I was given, which were anticonvulsants because they weren't sure I wasn't going to have another seizure, and maybe just having your head cut open, uh, having a piece of your brain cut out, and then having them seal you back up uh, caused me to be angry. So I, I had a lot of, uh, for some reason, I was just not myself. Uh, for maybe, I don't know, maybe a couple months, two to three months. And uh, I, I wasn't sure, like psychologically, you don't know why that's coming up. But I think part of it was physiological. I, I think it was just actually going through the experience of having that done that caused it. But I'm not a doctor. 
I'm not a psychologist, so that's my best guess. So that my reaction to it was anger for a while, and then that just dissipated, thankfully, and uh, I was better. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for the transparency. I, I'm always curious on what people learn in the in the tough parts of life. It's not you. Uh, somebody once told me that there's there's never greenery that grows at the top of the mountain. It always grows at the bottom. And that, that was pretty profound. So um, I, I did have the opportunity to read the Elite Sales Strategies. And it's it's a very awesome book. And uh, I read the last one as well. And there's so many questions that I could ask, but I know we only have a certain amount of time. So I'm going to, to dig right in. You know, the, it's, uh, it says it's a guide to being one-up, creating value, and becoming truly consultative. So what does it mean to be a guide, a sales guide? Well, the very concept of being one-up, it comes with some baggage because some people immediately see those words. The book was actually going to be called The One-Up Sale, but, but Wiley was petrified of that title uh, for, for the reason that I'm about to explain. The one-upmanship idea is not the same idea as the one I'm expressing in the book, even though you might see the words one up and think that. And that would be something like, Nick, did you and I meet at Columbia when I was getting my MBA? And and that's just me trying to put you down in front of other people, right? You're like, no, I didn't go to Columbia. I wasn't there. Like, And that's, that's one-upmanship. That's just trying to put somebody down so you have a different view from other people. That is not what we're doing. But... The concept is kind of the same. I know something that you don't know. And if you would let me share it with you, you would be better prepared to get the results that you're struggling to get right now. Now, why is that? Because those of us who do this every single day, where we guide people on their journey, we help them get the better results through our advice and our counsel and our recommendations we have more experience than they do. So we're one up as it pertains to the decision that the client's making. And we're one up as it pertains to the better results that they need and how they should go about pursuing those. That does not mean that you're smarter than your client. So let's get that out of the way because some people are like, so I need to know more than my client. No, you don't need to know more. You need to know different. You need to have something different that allows you to give them new information correct their information disparity, where I know something you don't know, I'm going to give you what I know so you can make those decisions. So the nature of being one up, oddly enough, means that you have to also accept that you're one down. (laughs) So this is a, a conflict for people. Well, I thought I'm supposed to be one up. You are supposed to be one up. But to be one up, you have to recognize that you're one down. And your client knows things that you don't know that would be very helpful and helping them make the good decision that they need to make and to get the better results that they need. So you're both one up and you're both one down at the same time. If you talk to each other and you transfer that information from one to the other, you're both better prepared to, to go on that journey together and make sure that it's successful at the end. It's You talked about being one up versus one down, and I think it's interesting. Immediately when I first saw the cover, I thought of the one up mentality that you mentioned first about going to Columbia and getting your MBA. And <laughs> I but, didn't go. That was just my, uh, my way of <laughs> right, trying no, to explain no. this to people. 
But being one up in the book, you said that it requires more of a salesperson. Why does it require more of a salesperson to being one up? Because your obligation, you, you have an ethical obligation to take care of your client. And that means you're responsible for helping them on that journey. You're responsible for correcting all their false assumptions. You're responsible for making sure that they have all the conversations that they need to have to be able to successfully change. We have to remember that in sales, you know, it's our deal. It's their change initiative. So they're not thinking about this as a deal. They're thinking about a change initiative, which is complicated and difficult. And if it's not handled well, we'll end in failure, um, which it does most of the time. Most of the time, buyer's journeys end in no decision. And and about I've seen the statistics that something like over 60% of people have buyer's remorse because they bought something and it didn't work the way that they needed it to. So you have an obligation. If you're going to take somebody's money and you're going to take their time and you're going to promise them that you're going to get them an outcome, well, you damn well better do that because that's what you promised. And and that's what makes you one up is that you have the obligation to lead the client. They don't do this very often. So we do it every day. They do it once every seven or 10 years. They make the decision we ask them to make, whatever that frequency is for you if you're listening to this. That means that their assumptions might be five or seven years old. They might not be true anymore. And they might need a lot of information to be able to make a good decision because the way that they made it before, I mean, if you just look at how much the world has changed in just say the last three years, like the world keeps changing. And if you don't update your assumptions, you make bad decisions, decisions you would have made better if somebody would have given you good counsel. And that goes back to being a sales guide. You you touched on, I can't remember, totally going to botch the lady's name and maybe you can help me with it, but you talk about, this lady talks about you're either the hero or you're the guide. You Nancy have Duarte. To to, Nancy yeah. Duarte, yeah. And so guide them to that decision by adding the value that you know and the expertise that you know and the things that they don't. And sometimes that's not always going to help you, but it's going to inform and provide insight to the people that are going to make decisions so they can make better decisions in the future. Yeah. And in the way that we've always thought about sales is, you know, we come in and we're Luke Skywalker, you know, and, and Nancy Duarte points out, no, you're Yoda. <laughs> like you're not the hero. They're the hero. <laughs> you're the guide. You're supposed to be teaching them what they need to know to tackle the challenge that they have. And I think it's just beautiful the way that she put that in a book called uh, resonate and when I read it, I thought, that's perfect. Uh, it's it's absolutely perfect to switch that in their mind that you're not the hero. It's not about your company. It's not about your solution. It's not about your clients. It's about the better results that that person needs and how you're going to enable that for them. Absolutely. There, you touched on something about the buyer's journey. And in the book, you talked, there's, there's a difference between the buyer's journey and the buyer's journeys. So what is that? Well, it's two things. We have this conception of a buyer's journey, you know, that starts with attention and interest and all those things that you generally see. But when you think about this, there is a a person that you're dealing with that is on a buyer's journey. But that journey isn't the same journey that someone else might need to take. And that might not even be the right journey for the rest of their team. They might not be 
aware of the things that they need to be aware of to even be successful at that journey. So you have to start looking at it through a lens that says, what does this individual need? What do these individuals need? Because their journeys are all different. Some of them are more concerned about the change. Some are more excited by the change. Some have some experience that's useful. Some don't have enough experience to have an opinion, but they're in the room anyway. So you start have to start looking at this and say, how do I, how do I help these people get the ideas that they need to be able to successfully make a good decision and then produce the better results that they're after? When you think of it as everybody's doing it in the same linear way, like it's always linear, it always goes the same direction, that's just not true. And it's not true for the sales conversation either. I mean, the process that starts target, qualify, discovery, solution development in a straight line from left to right, that's not been true for a decade. And and I used to um, just keep myself in the closet and not say it out loud, but I've been agnostic about that for so long just because I've seen as a salesperson that it just doesn't go in that order for them. They're they're having much tougher time having the conversations than we think they are. And that's why many of them don't find their way to the end of the journey at all. They just drop out. And it's because there's too much politics, too much angst about change, concerns about whether or not it's going to work and if they're going to be chastised for making a poor decision. So there's all these things that are going on. You have to be aware and intuitive enough to recognize what those things are and to be one up enough to help people get through those things. It seems like the salespeople at the end of a month, end of a quarter, end of a year is when desperation kicks in. What happens in that moment and and what should they be doing instead? they immediately put themselves in the one down position. <laughs> like they become a beggar. I had a, a company that reached out to me and they, they had a great pitch. I mean, this was like a real insight based approach and they taught me something about myself right out of the gate. That was perfect. And I, I recognized that they were really good salespeople, but we had a couple conversations and then they came back to me and said, our quarter ends on, on Friday. And it would be really, really helpful if we could get this signed before then. And I said, you're going to need to sharpen your pencil if you want me to do it today. And they immediately gave me a huge discount. (laughs) And instead of saying, Hey, listen, we would love to do that. You're going to get more out of this than we are. We've already shown you the mistakes that you're making and you need to make this investment so we can get you the results. They went, okay, they sent it over. (laughs) And, and that's just desperation. The only thing that you can do not to be desperate is to have enough opportunities that you're not desperate. And and that that's the problem for a lot of salespeople is that they don't do enough prospecting to protect the ability to be one up. And if you always need the next deal because you don't have enough deals, it's hard to be one up. It is definitely hard to be one up. I, I've, I've seen desperation. I probably have been desperate in the past. So I I, I understand, but you have to provide the value enough. And you, for my whole goal is to be the hub. It's not just to provide the information that I can sell, but it's to be the person that they're going to go to and say, Hey, Nick, where can I find the greatest janitor in XYZ company? Uh, And I want to at least push them in the right direction. 
But one of the questions I, I had for you is, is why should, why should salespeople stop talking about the solution and staying in the solution mode and buy from me and look how awesome I am and opening up their black leather jacket and saying, which one do you want? I have a great deal for you. And why should they start talking about the outcomes? This is an actual Rolex right here, right? In the, in the, <laughs> yeah, if you've been to New York. You're like, yeah, but it's ticking. It's ticking. It's not a Rolex. <laughs> but it looks like a Rolex. It's true. The problem with being in solution mode is that you're, you're not giving counsel. You're not giving advice. You're not making recommendations. All you're doing is saying, you have a problem. My company's a great company. Uh, look at all these logos that we have that we've already won, and people that are happy with us. And this solution is the right answer for you. So the sum total of their advice is buy my solution from me and my company. That's the, that's the advice that they give. They don't give any other advice. And so they don't help them with the buyer's journey. They don't help them understand the different choices. They don't teach them what factors that they need to look at, how to weigh those factors. They just don't do any of those things because they've been taught explain that my company is uh, a worthwhile company and trustworthy. So that approach, by my, my guess, is probably 100 years old when the salesperson didn't know anything. Like there was no insight-based selling. It was you have to trust the company and you have to trust the product and we'll guarantee it for you. So that's what they talked about because they didn't really know anything. That's, that's 100 years ago. So that, that's a long time. We continue to do this because we're afraid that the salesperson is going to lack credibility. And so what happens is that they go through all of that, this, this ancient discovery process, and then they start talking and they make sure that they are not credible. That, that's what happens is you make sure that you're not credible because all you're doing is pointing back at what I would call nouns. The CEO is a noun. The business is a noun. The logos are nouns. Like you're just pointing at things that aren't in the room that don't create any value for the client. In fact, I would argue that you're creating anti-value. You're literally wasting people's time. If they wanted to know about your company, they'd go to your website. You can recite the website if you want to, but we used to make fun of people for opening up a catalog and asking people what they wanted to buy. But that's essentially what they're doing is that they're saying, I'm not the value proposition. The company and the solution is the value proposition. Well, when you're sitting across from somebody, you're the only thing that can create value for them. You're the only thing. So when you get this wrong and you think, well, it's not me, it's my company, it's my solution, then you're just wrong. Like you're one down and you're going to remain one down for a long time. Until you realize it's your job to create a preference to buy from you. If they have a preference to buy from you, then they have a preference to buy from your company. And then you can sell your solution. It's just way too fast. It's like, you've got a problem. I've got the answer. Let's get this done. And it's not how people can buy right now, especially with all the uncertainty that's going on in the world right now. It's harder. It's hard when you're uncertain to make decisions. Yeah. So you touched on it right there. You said credibility and certainty. And uncertainty for that matter. So why are there, how do salespeople create, why should they create certainty over credibility? Well, there's a couple things that we get wrong. What you're trying to do with the why us at the beginning is to give them certainty that they're going to get the positive outcome. That's exactly wrong. And it's exactly backwards. 
In the first conversation, you should be giving them certainty of negative consequences because you're trying to help them recognize the need to change, not to buy your solution. They're not going to buy the solution if they don't believe that they have to change. So instead of giving them the certainty that they're going to get positive outcomes, you want to do it the other way and give them certainty that right now in an uncertain environment like this, you're going to have trouble. You can avoid some of that trouble if you make changes. Now, listen, some of those changes don't even require your solution. I I tell people all kinds of things that they should do that have nothing to do with the solution just because I have the right advice. As As somebody who helps sales organizations, train your managers before you train your salespeople. That's free. Like, that's not my solution. That's just my best recommendation if you want behavioral change. So there's a lot of things that you can do if you have the expertise, if you have the experience, and if you have an approach that we we still just call one-up. So if you're one-up and you can do that, then you're giving people a much better experience and one that's going to cause them to buy from you. In a competitive market, does your customer service stand out from the crowd? One way to offer a better experience is by moving your contact center to the cloud. But with so many options to choose from, how do you know which solution is the best for both your business and your customers? That's where VDS comes in and guides you to the best solution. They understand your clients' pain points, business outcomes, and goals. Then VDS designs, implements, supports, and provides 24-7 managed services. From start to finish, VDS is committed to finding the best solutions for your clients' needs. To learn more, go to www.govds.com or find a link in the show notes. So the people that are making the decision at the end of the day that you're selling to, or maybe you're not quite at that decision maker level, which shame on you, but why do decision makers seek trusted advisors? I mean, you can go all the way back through history. I mean, as far back in history as we have any written records, you can find that people who had power recognized, let's just call it intellectual humility. I know that I don't know everything I need to know. Great leaders know that they don't know everything that they need to know, and they surround themselves with people who can cover the gaps in their knowledge and experience. That's why a CEO isn't the only C-level executive really good at execution, uh, also has a COO, somebody better at operating. They have a CFO. Why do they have a CFO? Because somebody's better at financials than they are. And so you surround yourself with those people. And the idea of being one up in, in part is being truly consultative. Is be, it's how you become a trusted advisor. But if you don't know something that I don't know, you can't be my advisor because you don't have any advice. And I've been teasing audiences with this for years. There's only two things you need to be a trusted advisor, trust and advice. And you don't, you don't come with the advice. So if you don't have the advice, you can never be a trusted advisor. And no one's ever going to look at you and say, I got a guy. You need to talk to Nick. Nick's going to take care of this for you. He's the best in the world. Just call him. He's going to take care of this for you. That can never happen to you if all you do is say, my company's really good and we have a great solution. That will never, ever happen to you. It has to go, your advice has to go far deeper than that. There's just not another way for you to get there. Yeah, I love the fact of being that trusted advisor. I've even heard it in in other 
people say in her other books is having that personal board. Who's on your personal board? And and maybe it's somebody who is in finance, who who is good at with their with their numbers, who has been through a marriage, you know, either has a really good marriage or hasn't had a good marriage because there's a lot of things that you can learn from people who've gone through it and have failed. If that's a an RFP or if that's a, a project or that's uh, dealing with that next stage in life. So uh, we all have trusted advisors, whether we know it or call it that or not. Right. Yeah. You have doctors, lawyers, uh, CPA. I mean, you have a whole bunch of people that that know things that you don't know so that you don't have to know everything, which is really nice. Like you don't want to know everything. Yeah. I, I would be in trouble if I pretended that I knew everything and it takes a little bit of humility and uh, not being prideful to admit that uh, I would just Google everything. <laughs> Why does my arm hurt instead of just going to the doctor and getting a cast because my arm's broken? Yeah, you ever, everybody goes to WebMD and uh, and uh, goes does their own diagnosis, and I always tease people that they have uh, MacGyver syndrome, uh, which is a, a fake uh, illness in a Batman comic book uh, from uh, the Ice Guy. So it's <laughs> great. Uh, anybody that pulls out a MacGyver reference is is a as a friend of mine. So. Uh, McGruber is a whole nother story. <laughs> so the last question I have for you regarding sales is people or companies don't change because of the fear of the unknown, the status quo. So what, what prevents them prospective clients from that change? Uncertainty. I mean, it's, it's mostly just the fear that it isn't going to work or that it's it's not going to work the way that we think it is, or that it, it's going to cause us more problems than we already have. People like the devil that they already know. They know that devil. They know exactly how to get around it. Uh, they've worked around it for probably years. And, and it, it's really interesting to me how we think about sales through this legacy sort of approach that we've had, where it's like, I'm going to go in and ask them what their problem is. Why would you do that? Because you don't know already or because any problem is a good problem for you? Probably not. So I've started teasing people with the idea, like when you sit down and you ask the client what their problem is, what if they say, Jimmy in accounting has a really bad attitude and nobody knows what to do with him. And our parking lot is too small. And we have all these new people coming in and they're parking in the grass. Like, does Does that problem seem like something that, you scheduled a meeting around? <laughs> Probably not. You already know what their problems are. You already know why they need to change. You have to start a conversation in a different place than buy, buy from us because we're great. You have to start in the place where that uncertainty has to turn into certainty of negative consequences. So the uncertainty already exists when you get there. And they've not done anything about it. In some cases, they might not have done anything about the problem they're having for years. You have to give them the certainty that there are negative consequences before you get to the point where you teach them that there's a way to have positive outcomes. And you can give them certainty on both of those things. That's the certainty sequence. And you got to get it in the right order. Yeah, if you bring it back to the doctor again, it's the whole, you have high cholesterol and your eating sucks. 
if you don't, if you continue with this, you are going to have that quadruple bypass at the age of 45. And that's that negative consequences that's going to happen if you don't change. And I like how you bringing that into business to give them an honest perspective of what that's going to do. I like in, in the book, you even predicted on where and when people are going to fail. Uh, usually it was with staffing issues as end of Q4, beginning of Q4. And uh, the conversation, I'm not going to ruin it for everybody. You're going to have to buy the book to to get the secret sauce, but how you had to fly from New York City overnight and, and have a conversation with a, a prideful uh, COO at the time. So it's a it's a great great conversation. I love that story, but uh, don't don't give the secret sauce on that one. <laughs> okay, I won't I won't tell them how it ends. So I wrap up every podcast with two questions, and the first question is: Is what book or person in customer service or customer experience has influenced you the most in the past year? And then the second one is: If what would you say if you could leave a note to all customer service professionals? It's going to hit everybody's desk Monday at eight a.m. I've got a group that does uh, growth marketing and uh, they push really, really hard on customer experience. So that group who I won't name uh, is really, really good at thinking through all the touch points and, and how to retain clients, which I care deeply about. The second question was, uh, what would I put on uh, a note that went to everybody in customer service or customer success mm-hmm. care more than anybody else. Why is it important to care more than anybody else? It's a superpower. It's a superpower. Like if you care more than anyone else and people can feel that doesn't matter how bad the problem is, you're going to do really, really well because caring is what's missing And look, so we live now in the digital age, right? So everything is online. So you you can worry about all of your your reviews and all those kinds of things. But what's really happened is because of things like Amazon and because of things like Uber and all of the technology that we have, uh, caring is gone. So it's all transactional. And that's what Silicon Valley gives us. They give us the ability to be transactional. Because that's their viewpoint. We should just be able to print money. That's what we want to do. And so that's that's how people treat things. If you care and people recognize that you care, then they're going to let you have a chance to respond effectively, help them solve whatever it is that they need, and you'll retain the client. When they recognize that you don't care and it's just a transaction, then people move on and hope that they can find somebody else that cares enough to really help them. So that's it. I think it's the most critical superpower, not only for customer service, but for salespeople. Like if you really care about helping them get the outcome and you decide you're going to be one up, like I'm going to have the difficult conversation. Some of them are in that book that you started to reference. Some of them are in the book because I'm not afraid of the conflict that comes from it. I'm afraid of not having the conflict and failing the client. Like my job is to take care of them. They might not like my advice. So you were talking about cholesterol or what the doctor tells you. It's very hard for people to change their their patterns and their behaviors. So you have to work really hard to get them to do the things that are necessary so that they can be successful. And that's what makes you a trusted advisor because you actually tell the truth. 
And if you tell the truth all the time and you do the work and people know you care, you're in really good shape. Well said. Well said. So how can my listeners connect with you? My phone number is, um, no, no, uh, let's send them to thesalesblog.com. When you go there, you can sign up for the newsletter. And uh, also LinkedIn is a great place to connect. So either one of those two places. Yeah, thanks so much, Anthony. And to all my listeners, go out and buy this book, Elite Sales Strategies, a guide to being one-up, creating value, and becoming truly consultative. Uh, The link will be in the show notes, and I will also post that on social media. So, Anthony, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today? If so, please consider sharing this episode with them. And last, if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests, you can go to pressonefornick.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Press One for Nick. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. Until next time, focus on your customers. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.